Sometimes a glitch is just a glitch. Your computer program locks up, you close it down again, you open it up again, and you move on because it was just a glitch. So the president's health insurance program, the Affordable Care Act, launches fall 2013 with some problems, problems with the software, problems with deadlines, problems with public expectations. So what are those? Are those just glitches? Or are we, as some have argued, actually looking at the blue screen of death for Obamacare? Well, that sounds like a debate, so let's have it. Yes or no to this statement. Obamacare is now beyond rescue. A debate from Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. We are at the Kaufman Music Center in New York, and we have four superbly qualified debaters, two teams of two, who will take opposite sides on this motion. Obamacare is now beyond rescue. As always, our debate goes in three rounds, and then the audience votes to choose a winner, and only one side wins. Our motion, Obamacare, is now beyond rescue. Let's meet the team arguing for that motion. First, ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome Dr. Scott Gottlieb. Uh, Scott, uh, you have, uh, you have uh, been a practicing physician. You're a former FDA deputy commissioner. You have said in the past that Obamacare is looking more and more like Medicaid, which is an interesting comment because during the Bush administration, you were actually a senior advisor to the Medicaid program. So what we're trying to understand is when you say that Obamacare is looking more like Medicaid, is that a compliment or the reverse? Medicaid is quite literally obligating the poor to indecencies in seeking medical care and poor health outcomes. Thank you very much, Scott Gottlieb. And, uh, Scott, your partner is? The always provocative Megan McArdle. Ladies and gentlemen, Megan McArdle. (laughs) Megan, you are also arguing for this motion. Obamacare is now beyond rescue. You are a columnist for Bloomberg View. You are author of the forthcoming book, The Upside of Down, Why Failing Well is the key to success. And given the, the start to healthcare.gov, which had some failures in its first week, does that mean it had some, that was good failure or bad failure? Uh, well, the reason that I wrote the book is that I think that this, the key to, uh, to succeeding is to find out what works. And the best way to find out what works is to fail and find out what doesn't. And I would say we are finding out what doesn't work. All right. Thanks, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Megan McArdle, ladies and gentlemen. Our motion is Obamacare is now beyond rescue. We have two debaters arguing against this motion. First, let's welcome, ladies and gentlemen, Jonathan Chait. Uh, Jonathan, you are a daily columnist at New York Magazine. You write political commentary for its website and also for the print magazine. You have written on numerous occasions. You've made this point that the law that uh, President Obama uh, eventually signed off on is essentially based on a moderate a Republican health care plan, and you use Romney Care as an example of that. So if that is right. true, what explains why the Republican Party is now so vociferously against Obamacare? Well, the vast majority of them really don't know what the law does. They're not policy wonks. So when Mitt Romney said he was for it, it sounded like a good, solid Republican idea. But when Barack Obama said he was for it, then it became a socialist plot to destroy America. And if you don't know what's in the law, that's a pretty sensible way to think about what the law does. All right. We see how you're thinking, Jonathan Chait, ladies and gentlemen. And Jonathan, uh, your partner is? Doug Camero. Ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome Dr. Douglas Camero. 
And uh, Doug, you are also arguing against this motion. Obamacare is now beyond rescue. You are a family doctor. You're a specialist in preventive medicine. You spent 20 years in the U.S. Public Health Service uh, working uh, in a range of issues, clinical research policy, and uh, reached the rank of assistant surgeon general. You have a book uh, a while back, Dissecting American Healthcare, and you started your chapter on healthcare reform by saying, quote, health is a blessing that money cannot buy. So why, Doug, are we talking about dollars so much here? I think the reason, John, is because though health can't be bought, health care is a big business. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, Doug Camero. And let's welcome our four debaters. Now, this is a debate. It's a contest, a contest of wit and logic and humor and ideas and insight. It's competition. And by the time the debate has ended, we will have one side winning and one side losing. And that is determined by vote of you, our live audience here in New York. We have you vote twice, once before the debate and once again after the debate. And the team whose numbers have changed the most over the course of the evening will be declared our winner. So let's go to our preliminary vote. If you go to those keypads at your seat, we're going to register you. uh, We're going to register your opening positions as members of the audience on this motion. Obamacare is now beyond rescue. If you agree with that statement, push number one. If you disagree, push number two. And if you're undecided, push number three. I see a lot of people staring at the graphic on the screens as they push the buttons. That is not meant to be a subliminal suggestion. It's meant only to be provocative, but not to sway your vote. All right, so we're going to lock out the votes, and I'll remind you again, after the arguments, which go in three rounds, we will have you vote a second time, and we'll very quickly get the results and find out who, in your view, won this debate. So on to round one. Round one, opening statements by each debater in turn. They will be seven minutes each maximum. Speaking first for the motion, Obamacare is now beyond rescue. Dr. Scott Gottlieb, he is a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and former FDA Deputy Commissioner for Medical and Scientific Affairs. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Dr. Scott Gottlieb. When it comes to Obamacare, most of the focus is on the broken website and the problems enrolling people into the coverage. But the real failures of this plan go well beyond the Internet. They're embedded in the structure of the law, and they'll become more acute as this scheme unfolds. Obamacare rests on some deeply flawed concepts that turn the proposals against the legislation's own laudable goals. Simply put, it's a plan at war with its own ambitions. And tonight I want to briefly address some of the paradoxes embedded in this law. First, Obamacare seeks to lower the cost of health care. But instead, it creates new arrangements that will only make medical care more expensive. A big reason is provisions that deliberately force doctors to consolidate their medical practices around hospitals. Having doctors work for hospitals is often the costliest way to deliver care. And we know there's a lot of excess capacity in hospitals. We've basically built in a subsidy of that excess capacity. And we also know that there's ample evidence that when physicians become the employees of hospitals and hospital-owned systems, productivity falls. And when hospitals buy up local physicians in a community and are able to exercise monopoly pricing power, they raise prices. Second, the law seeks to increase competition between insurers. It's partly seen as a way to lower costs. But Obamacare will actually reduce the number of health plans in the marketplace 
and leave you with fewer choices. For one thing, Obamacare caps the operating margins of health plans. This basically protects the businesses of incumbent insurers at the expense of new startups and new entrants. Obamacare also uses regulation to prescribe a single, uniform benefit package. The result is that consumers are left with just one option when it comes to the benefits they can choose from. Go on the website and take a look for yourself, and I'll be, I'm putting out some data on this next week. If you look at the health plans that insurance companies sell on the exchanges, the provider networks and the drug formularies are exactly the same. It doesn't matter if you buy a plan that's a bronze plan, a gold plan, or a platinum plan. By buying up to a costlier plan, all you're doing is lowering your co-pays and deductibles. In other words, you're just fronting a higher premium to buy down your out-of-pocket costs. There is no competition between these plans based on benefits or networks. There is no real choice in these exchanges. Third, Obamacare is aimed at reducing the number of uninsured Americans, but the vast majority of the uninsured who get coverage under this scheme will end up on Medicaid. And so what about the people who sign up for private coverage in the Obamacare exchanges? They're going to mostly be people who were previously insured in the individual or small group markets and got moved into Obamacare, some of them forcibly. But don't take my word for this. Look at the numbers being put out by the administration. The White House says that 19 million people will be added to Medicaid. That's a 35% increase in the size of the program. But at best, 5 million people will get Obamacare coverage this year, and it's probably going to be closer to 4 million. But we know at least 5 million people lost their policies when the mandates of this law were, were imposed on the private market and insurers had to drop old plans that didn't conform. And as for the uninsured... For lower-middle-class folks, for people above 200% of the federal poverty level, family of four four earning about $50,000 a year, Obamacare is still too expensive for them, even with the benefits of the subsidies. And so a family of four earning $50,000 a year will have to pay $400 a month even after the subsidies to buy that coverage. That's $5,000 a month, and they're getting a plan with a $3,000 deductible. The problem is that's not a good plan for that family, and the problem is that these plans were designed in Washington to meet political aspirations rather than in the marketplace to meet the demands of what consumers needed. And think about this. There were 46.3 million uninsured in 2008 when President Obama took office. This year there were 48 million uninsured Americans. The only way the president's going to leave office with fewer uninsured Americans than when his his term began is by obligating more people to Medicaid. Obamacare is really a Medicaid law. And so it begs the question, what about Medicaid? There's now ample evidence in the clinical literature that people on Medicaid are experiencing worse health outcomes than people in other insurance schemes, and sometimes even than the uninsured. Simply put, reimbursement rates have been driven so low in the Medicaid program that folks can't get access to the benefits that they're promised on paper. I don't consider it successful if the only way we reduce the roles of the uninsured in in this country is by obligating more Americans to a Medicaid program that's quite literally worsening medical outcomes. This doesn't seem moral. Yet Obamacare does almost nothing to fix that Medicaid. It just pushes more people through an already failing system. In many ways, these problems that plague Medicaid will also plague Obamacare. Obamacare makes so many costly promises on paper that the only way to pay for these commitments is to reduce what providers are paid. In Obamacare, this has meant narrow networks that contain very short lists of providers and closed drug formularies that leave key medicines uncovered. And the Obamacare regulations don't just apply to the Obamacare plans. This is a federalization of all insurance in this country, so everyone's benefits need to conform to this single uniform national standard. 
<clears throat> Obamacare was a response to a flawed health care system. There's no question about that. But it makes things worse. It reduces choice and competition in health plans. It increases costs by reducing the productivity of the practice of medicine. And finally, it only reduces the number of uninsured by obligating millions of more people to a Medicaid benefit that's quite literally harming people's health. In all these ways, Obamacare works against its own laudable intentions. There were far better ways to address issues of the uninsured in this country and far better ways to address the issues of those who were priced out of the insurance market. For all these reasons and more, Obamacare is now beyond rescue. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Scott Gottlieb. And that's our motion. Obamacare is now beyond rescue. And here to speak against this motion, Dr. Douglas Camaro. He is a uh, professor of uh, – sorry, I want to pronounce your name correctly. I'm going to get it right this time. Dr. Douglas Camaro. He is – Camaro is a professor of clinical family medicine at Georgetown University and chief scientist in health services and policy research at RTI International. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Douglas Camaro. Thanks, John, and thanks for inviting me. Uh, the motion that you've heard is Obamacare is now beyond rescue. What you heard Dr. Gottlieb argue is not that it's beyond rescue. It's that he doesn't like a lot of the provisions of the law. What, what we're here to discuss, it seems to me, is, the, is what has been in the proposed. And the proposed was either Obamacare is now beyond rescue, meaning it's not doing what it was supposed to do, or it is, beyond, it is not beyond rescue, and therefore it is doing what it can do. My partner, Jonathan Chait, and I will argue that not only is this law not beyond rescue, uh, it doesn't need to be rescued because the law already has worked and is working. And to understand whether it's working, we need to understand where we were before the law was passed and what the goals of the law were. I'll cover that. Uh, and Jonathan will also discuss the achievements of Obamacare, but I'll focus on criticisms and dire predictions, of which we've already heard many, uh, from the opponents of the law. Uh, speaking of dire predictions, we'll come back to some of the ones that we heard, but there are a few, I think, that, uh, that we'll have to deal with sooner rather than later. Let me first turn to the question about uh, Obamacare and, and what it does. It's an insurance law, but of course it includes cost controls and quality improvements as well. I want to focus on the insurance stuff because the question occurs, why is health insurance important? There are a lot of studies that show a lot of reasons for it. Some include showing that kids who have health care insurance are less likely to miss their shots, and if they don't have insurance, they're more likely to miss them. Healthy adults without insurance tend not to get mammograms and other preventive services that they need. People who have diseases such as diabetes and hypertension and they don't have insurance do poorly. They, they tend to be more out of control. And if they have bad outcomes like strokes, they tend to be more severe. But just as important in terms of outcomes besides health, people who have no insurance uh, and have a serious health problem can be bankrupted by it in the system that we had until very recently. This led a group at the Institute of Medicine in a big report to say that the lack of health care insurance results in needless illness, needless suffering, and needless deaths. Let's, let's turn the clock back a little bit to 2008, 2009, when this law was being debated. Uh, at that time, we had 40 to 45 million people uninsured. We were spending $2.5 trillion a year on health and health care and growing. And we had some of the worst statistics for health outcomes in the developed world. 
In, ad- in addition, the, most of the insurance products that we saw at that time didn't have portability. If you lost your job, you often lost your insurance. They didn't have guaranteed issue. So if you had a pre-existing condition and tried to get health insurance and you're not in a big group, forget about it. And there were no national standards for insurance policies. We were largely, not exclusively, but we were largely in a fee-for-service systems uh, system with incentives really pushing towards more care, not better care, not the appropriate care, but the more you did, the more you got paid. And so it was estimated at that time that unnecessary care could have been 10, even 20 percent of the money that was being spent. And equally important were the projections, and this is just now four years ago, the projections of where we were going to be by 2018, which is just four years from now, if nothing had been done. Over 80, 60 million people uninsured at that point. Healthcare spending going from $2.4 trillion to $4.7 trillion a year. Family health care premiums going up from $13,000 to average $30,000 a year. Medicare trust fund runs out of money. And no change in that fee-for-service culture that pays for more medicine, more health care, not necessarily better. So in March of 2010, which is now almost four years ago, um, we had this law signed, Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, ACA, hugely complex, admittedly, admittedly imperfect law. But not just insurance form, quality improvement, cost reductions. What are some of the things that have happened in the first three years of this law? Young adults, 26 and under, now can get coverage on their parents' policies, and 3 million have. Pre-existing conditions not allowed to prevent coverage. There's portability of insurance coverage. No lifetime caps. Community rating, which means if you're in a small business, one person gets very sick or their family member does, it doesn't raise the rates for everybody. No lifetime caps on coverage. Lots of stuff, and in, in some ways, very importantly, uh, no co-pays, no deductibles for preventive care that's evidence-based. Also, cost-related things. We're now paying hospitals for outcomes, not the services they deliver. There are penalties for hospital readmissions when someone's discharged and then readmitted to the hospital soon afterwards. Something called accountable care organizations are getting paid for performance rather than piecework. And there are many experiments and demonstrations from part of the government now called the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. Importantly, cost reforms have slowed down dramatically, have slowed down costs dramatically. That is, the increase per year is just an average of 1.1% in the past three years, 2010 to 2012. So in summary, before this year, before anything that's been controversial in the news happened, there are already a lot of good things that are going on because of Obamacare. Then we come to October 2013. Everyone knows. What a disaster. Okay? People can't sign up. The computer systems don't work. The website's a mess. There's lots of confusion Some provisions of the law have been postponed. But even conceding that all this was a mess, let's look what's happened recently. Six million enrollees, two million in exchanges, 4.4 million in Medicaid. We'll come back to Medicaid. People up to 400% of the federal poverty levels are getting subsidies to help pay for their insurance. And cost increases continue to moderate. Let me conclude now by asking you to remember where we were, where we've been, and where we are now. I want to quote uh, from a mock interview that was in one of my favorite newspapers, a satiric newspaper called The Onion. <laughs> the headline was, Nation Recalls Simpler Time When Healthcare System Was, beyond, was Broken Beyond Repair. 
Here's the quote. Back then, if you couldn't afford health care insurance and got really sick, you went bankrupt, plain and simple, (laughs) said a Modesto, California mother of three. They didn't have this whole mess of lower-cost options or all these subsidies you might or might not qualify for based on your income. People didn't have to deal with any of that stuff and those headaches. Just went ahead and died of preventable causes. (laughs) Douglas, Douglas Cameron, I'm sorry, your time is up. Thank you very much. And here's where we are. We are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two against two, arguing it out over this motion. Obamacare is now beyond rescue. You have heard two of the opening statements. And now on to the third. Let's please welcome Megan McArdle. She is a columnist for Bloomberg View and author of the forthcoming book, The Upside of Down. Ladies and gentlemen, Megan McArdle. To hear Doug Kemmerer describe it, it's amazing, and I want to sign up. Um, But, you know, these debates often tend to sort of devolve into who doesn't want people to die? So uh, that's not actually what's on the table here. The issue is not are Democrats socialists, are Republicans stupid and venal and terrible people. The issue is, is this law, Obamacare, accomplishing what it set out to do? Is it making Americans better off? And can it survive in its current form? If you listen to the administration, it's impossible for Obamacare to fail. Because every time they don't hit some number that they've been promoting, they just change the terms and redefine success as whatever's already happened. So, for example, just a few months ago, Kathleen Sebelius, who's the Secretary of Health and Human Services, was saying that success in the exchanges was 7 million people signed up by March of 2014. And then they had a few problems with the exchanges. And then suddenly, success wasn't having 7 million people signed up. Success was having a healthy demographic mix in the pool, in the insurance pools, on the exchanges. Then we, they said that we got needed about 40% of the people to be young adults, which is between the ages of 18 and, and 35. And then we got some data on the demographics. And so far, about 20 to 25% of the people who've signed up are young adults. And we've got many more old people than we expected, which for the reasons that should be fairly obvious, could make insurance cost a lot more than we were hoping. Um, So in their most recent conference call, they said that success would be signing up as many people as possible, which is this beautifully circular reference, right? However many people you've signed up is the number that was possible. It's the self-licking ice cream cone of policy programs. But for the rest of us, I don't think it's enough for Obamacare to merely exist. It has to actually do something and do something that we want. So what did we want? What were we promised? We were promised lower costs for government and individuals, and we've heard some of that. The administration likes to claim that this has already happened. It hasn't. Healthcare cost growth has indeed slowed, but healthcare cost growth started slowing in 2004 when Barack Obama was a junior state senator from Illinois. He had not even been elected to the U.S. Senate, much less to the presidency. Um, You see a big decline in 2005 to 2007, uh, in 2003 to 2005, another between 2007 and 2009, but it actually leveled off in 2010, right when Obamacare comes in and cost growth has been kind of bumping along if you look at the OECD figures on this. Kaiser projects, you remember we heard that uh, the average family was going to save $2,500 a year on their premiums. Um, That didn't happen. Kaiser is now projecting that that premiums will go up. Um, 
we wanted people to get healthier as a result of this law. But then we got the Oregon Medicaid study, which is the gold standard in studies of, of Medicaid. And it looked at the, th- at the three things you really want to look at for preventative care. It looked at hypertension control, cholesterol control, um, and it showed no statistically significant results. More than half of the expansion in Obamacare comes through Medicaid. We wanted pre- people with pre-existing conditions. All of the, the millions of people with pre-existing conditions we were told were out there to be able to buy insurance. But when they set up pools in order to cover people with pre-existing conditions, they were expecting to get 400,000 people between 200, 2010 and 2013. Instead, they got a quarter of that number, and they only managed to get that by lowering the requirements and doing an aggressive outreach campaign to sign more people up. And we wanted expanded health care coverage, Right. But at this point, we can't even say that there are more people insured right now than there were on January 15th of 2013. We have, we, the administration says that there have been 4 million people added to Medicaid, but half of those people came in states that didn't even do the Medicaid expansion. So definitionally, they were already eligible for Medicaid. Of the other states, some of those people were already eligible or may even be renewing their coverage. The administration can't even say that these are people who are getting new coverage. Some of them may just be going back onto Medicaid just like they were last year. We got 2.2 million people on the exchanges, but 5 million people had their policies canceled. No one, I think, predicted that at this point, this late in the game, we wouldn't even know whether we've increased the insurance numbers, and the administration refuses to certify that that has actually happened. Meanwhile, we were not supposed to hurt anyone who had insurance, right? If you liked your plan, if you liked your doctor, you could keep them. We all know that that has not happened. Those 5 million people have had their plans canceled, and many people who are buying new plans are seeing that their doctors, they are not best hospitals and doctors in their area, have been kicked off the networks in order to keep the premium costs down on the exchanges. So... It was also supposed to get really popular, right? Because we had all of this great stuff, this giant Rube Goldberg apparatus layered on top. We didn't take anything away. We only gave. Um, and it's kind of time for a Dr. Phil moment. How is that working for you? Nothing is working the way the administration said. Now, you can say it doesn't really matter whether it's unpopular, right? The point is not to be popular. And yes, some people have gotten hurt, but you can't make an omelet without breaking eggs, right? It was never reasonable to think that everyone was going to get to keep the the doctors and the plans that they wanted. Something had to change. And this is a foundation for something better. But this foundation has so many cracks that you cannot build a healthy structure on top of it. Just look at everything the administration has had to do in the last few months just to keep the law running. They had to delay the employer mandate and the enforcement because no, it, apparently because they couldn't even figure out how to make this regulation work. It may never go into effect, which means we'll lose millions of people who were supposed to get coverage expanded through the, and the costs will go up to the government. They delayed the Spanish language website, and now apparently part of it is written in Spanglish. Um, Despite the fact that Hispanics are a major constituency for insurance extensions, they delayed the small business exchanges. They've allowed people to keep plans that were supposed to be illegal because they weren't real insurance, Kathleen Sebelius told us. They've delayed deadlines over and over again. They've done all these things by asserting emergency powers, by doing administrative fixes through executive fiat. And, you know, fair enough, Obamacare is certainly an emergency, But all of these changes have had the effect of undermining and destabilizing the law that they think is so important. They've had to do these things even though they know that it makes the insurance pools less actuarially sound because they can't face the political backlash. And what happens when Republicans get into into office and 
I assume they, too, think Obamacare is an emergency and could be fixed with some executive orders. Essentially, they've made it so that Republicans can undo two-thirds of this law with a stroke of the presidential pen. Obamacare is now beyond rescue. The administration has destroyed their own law in order to save it. Thank Thank you. you. Megan McArdle. And that is our motion. Obamacare is now beyond rescue. And now to speak against this motion, coming to the lectern is Jonathan Chait. He is a daily columnist for New York Magazine. He's author of the book The Big Con, Crackpot Economics, and the Fleecing of America. Ladies and gentlemen, Jonathan Chait. Has anybody here ever renovated a house? I've done it twice. It was hell. Every day I went through brought fresh misery and fresh reason to think, why am I doing this? But the end, it worked. And the reason it worked is because we know how to renovate houses, right? So when you hear about the problems that our opponents are describing the law, they had to delay this, they had to fix this, the Spanish language website didn't work as well as they wanted the first day, you have to ask, are these things that are going to fundamentally destroy the law, or are they the kind of problems you have in a renovation? Things that, ah, we didn't quite get the counters we want, oh, this went a little bit over cost. Well, then you have to ask, to to answer that question, you have to ask, what kind of endeavor is Obamacare? Is the Obama administration trying to build a moon base? Is the Obama administration trying to build a thriving liberal democracy in a hostile Muslim country? No. What they're trying to do is build a national health insurance plan. Can you build a national health insurance plan? Well, every advanced economy in the world except the United States has built a national health insurance plan. All those countries insure all their citizens, and all of them pay considerably less than we pay here in the United States. So your a priori assumption has to be, yeah, this is something you can basically do, that the problems you have are not signs that everything's about to collapse onto itself, but the problems you have any time you go through any major project. So what our opponents have been trying to do for months and months and months, actually, is, is paint this picture where every time the contractor comes to you and says, oh, it turns out they don't have this color. Oh, oh, it turns out the plumber is unavailable on this date. It means that the whole thing is going to collapse on itself. But actually, nothing like that is happening at all, and there's no evidence that anything like this is happening. The, the main argument that the opponents have been making the entire time is that there's going to be a death spiral. That's the only plausible mechanism that they have that the law will fail. A death spiral is a term that I expected them to talk about because that's what they've been talking about for months. It's something they've barely invoked at all. And I think the reason is it's become clear in recent days that there's no chance of, of, of a death spiral in, in the Obamacare law. A death spiral is when you have too many old, sick people who drive up the costs, making the premiums more expensive, leaving the healthy people to flee, driving up costs more. That is theoretically possible. It's not something that you could possibly happen in this law. In fact, if you want to say, is the law succeeding, you don't have to ask the administration. You can ask the, ins- the insurers, right? Because the insurers have recently been saying they're very happy with the mix of people. The mix of people you have in the exchanges is sound. It's sustainable. They don't need, they don't need it to change. They've got a mix of people that's healthy enough to keep the exchanges going forward. What's more, even if you had more old people going into the exchanges than they, they expect, you had um, the Kaiser Health Foundation ran the numbers and said, what's the worst-case scenario? We don't get any increase in young people at all. And they said it would be about a 2.4% increase in premiums. 
2.4% increase in health insurance premiums. If any of you have ever had health insurance and you get a 2.4% increase over your bill last year, you say, thank God, it's only 2.4% increase, right? That's a rounding error. No one notices 2.4%. That couldn't possibly set off a death spiral. So there's really no plausible mechanism that the law could fail. So I think what they're giving you, instead of what used to be the plausible mechanism for which this can fail, they're, they're giving you a mix of wishes and hopes and completely defunct, debunked facts. They said cost growth leveled off in 2010. No, cost growth in 2012 was lower than in any year in 50 years. And in fact, this is important because when the law was passed, cost growth was the main thing they talked about. Obamacare was supposed to control costs, and they said, no, no, it's going to make costs explode with all this bureaucracy and regulation. They're going to go out of control. What happened is that cost growth came in way lower than the most optimistic estimates believed it would be before the law was signed. And so now they're reduced, instead of saying, this disaster of cost growth is going to happen. They're going to say this incredible miracle of low-cost growth is simply a coincidence. So it, the, all they're saying is essentially that this wonderful thing that's happened has nothing to do with the, with the gigantic change in health care reform that happened just before costs started going to the lowest level in 50 years. And you can't prove that it's not a coincidence, but, it's, but, but you have to – this is indicative of the mentality we're dealing with when they've simply moved from one possible disaster scenario to another possible disaster scenario. So you, so you have to wonder why are they simply moving from one disaster scenario to another disaster scenario. Actually, let me debunk a couple points they've made because a lot of the statistics we've heard from the other side are, are not true. I can't give you links and charts to debunk them, but let me say that it's, it's not the case that 5 million policies have been canceled. That's a, that's a number that's been floating about that you can't, you can't verify, and it's almost certainly not true. Many journalists have tried to figure out exactly how many policies have been canceled, and they don't have good enough records to know, but they know it's not 5 million. And they suspect, the administration suspects it's, it's closer to one-tenth that figure. They can't actually prove that either, but for, for various reasons, you don't have a good enough count. But it's, it's almost certainly nowhere close to 5 million. And that's a big number that they're citing because they're saying that those are the losers, but it's really nowhere close to that. They say, um, Megan said, we can't, we can't say for sure how, how many, how, how, that they're more insured now than there were before. We can't say for sure because, again, this number can't exactly be counted. We don't know if it's 400,000, if it's 500,000, but we know it's not anywhere close to 5 million. And it's all, all, and it's, and it's, it's a mortal certainty that far more people have health insurance now than, than would have had in absence of the law. So you want to say, so, so, why are we having this kind of lurch from one argument, abandoning these arguments when they disappear and simply coming up with new ones? The truth is they disagree with the goals of the law. And I think you could hear that in their remarks. They say there's less choice. And it's true. The government says insurers have to provide certain benefits, right? They have to provide pregnancy coverage. That's been maternity care. Those are the most controversial things that opponents have cited because they want people who are male, who are old, to not have to pay for those things. And they want people who are young and, and female and might have to bear children to pay those costs themselves because that's an ideological difference between the two sides. And that's fine for them to have an ideological difference between the two sides. But we're not here to debate whether this law is a good idea. We're here to debate whether the law is actually working. And the truth is, the only reason they're desperately trying to claim the law is not working is because they oppose national health insurance, and that's it. Thank you, Jonathan Chait. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is Obamacare is now beyond rescue. And now we go on to round two, and round two is where... 
Uh, the debaters address one another directly, and they take questions from me and from you and our live audience. Now, I want to remind you that tonight's debate is being broadcast worldwide on our website, iq2us.org, and on fora.tv. And if you're watching this live stream right now, we would like to hear from you. Uh, send us your questions on Twitter or Facebook with hashtag Obamacare so that we don't miss it. Uh, be sure to include your city, state, and first name. Um, and if you're going to do that, what we really request from you is not a statement or an assertion of your views, but really a question that moves uh, these debaters along on the motion, the specific motion of whether Obamacare is beyond rescue. Uh, try not to be ideological. Try to be provocative, which is a different thing. Um, so on into round two, and round two, as I said, is where the debaters address each other uh, directly. The motion is Obamacare is now beyond rescue. We have two teams arguing for and against that. The team arguing for the motion, Scott Gottlieb and Megan McArdle, uh, have argued, in a sense, they're arguing that the law from its beginnings has always been beyond rescue, that it reduces competition, it reduces uh, choice, it pushes people into Medicaid, a system which does not have uh, good medical outcomes, or at least not the kind of medical outcomes that people would aspire to for it. Uh, it they've described the law as a Rube Goldberg kind of apparatus, and that the administration only gets away with calling it successful in any way by continuously moving the goalposts. The team arguing against the motion, uh, Dr. Uh, Douglas uh, Camero and Jonathan Chait, say, yeah, the law is not perfect, but they're arguing that it's working in real ways already, that there are more people insured now than there were three years ago in the United States, that standards are being forced. Uh, and that, in general, that we've come a long way. And they also argue that the, in terms of the, the basic law, uh, the, the aspirations of the law, that lots of countries do it, and that, in fact, it does work. They argue that the opposition from their opponents is more ideological, that they just don't actually want the law to succeed. A question I'd actually like to put to the side arguing for the motion is, is that the case? Would you, would, in an ideal world, would Obamacare succeed? Uh, or would you hate that, Scott Godley? Well, look, I... I, I, look, in a wealthy country, I think we need to address issues of people who are priced out of the market, people who have pre-existing conditions and can't find coverage. I think there were far more efficient ways to do that. You could have given re people incentives to get insured and stay insured. It would have required that you subsidize certain people um, to get into the marketplace and subsidize them through transitions in life where they might um, otherwise not have the income and, and lose coverage. There's nothing inherently wrong with pooling people um, based on what state they live in, for example, to get back to the point that this is copying uh, Mitt Romney's plan. What's inherently wrong with this law is, is the way that the law tries to prescribe a uniform federal standard for what needs to be in everyone's insurance policies. And so these decisions get made in a political context, and you end up with policies that are exceedingly expensive, laden down with mandates, and don't meet what consumers want. And then you tell, cons you tell insurers they can't underwrite, underwrite risk, they can't use cost-sharing as a tool to steer people to certain benefits or others. They can't change the benefit design. And so they're forced to do one thing, which is to, to narrow the networks of providers that people have access to um, and to skinny down the drug formularies. And this is exactly what we've so done Scott, in Medicaid. Scott, to the point of the, of the motion and granting all of that, are you saying that therefore the law cannot work, that it's doomed to collapse in on itself? It's inherent, which is what the structure said. of this is inherently flawed. Scott, can I, can I ask a question? Scott, you're, you're saying, you're describing what you would have liked, but let's be real, let's be realistic. If the choice is we have Obamacare now, it's a law, what are the chances of any kind of a scenario that you're describing taking, you know, taking flight 
passing both houses of Congress in any time in the foreseeable future? I think that the problem is that the people in Washington, um, progressives in Washington, can't resist the temptation to tinker with every aspect of what the provisions are. And you end up with regulations that prescribe exactly what people have to have and don't have to have. Surgical sterilization is in. Certain things are out. You have a, a, a law that gets laden down with mandates, and it ends up being exceedingly expensive to provide this coverage to everyone. So they have to do it. The insurers have to go after the networks. It's exactly what we've done in Medicaid. We promised a very rich um, set of benefits on paper in Medicaid. It looks like a fabulous program, but we know Medicaid recipients can't get access to the care. I don't think it can be undone politically because these decisions now are being made in Washington. Jonathan Jake, do you want to respond? I'm willing to let Megan answer your question, too. Okay, Megan. Uh, Well, I I would say that I certainly agree with Jonathan Chait that this is going much, much, much worse than I thought, and there are all sorts of problems that I didn't anticipate. So to that extent, it's true. I'm picking on stuff that I did not predict because my worries at the time of passage were about things like the federal budget deficit and would the cost controls hold, would this – tamp down innovation, which is, if you think about the millions of, of unborn or still living but not yet sick people who can be solved by, be cured by innovations that haven't happened yet, I was worried about that. Um, but we haven't gotten to the point where I can worry about those sorts of things. We've gotten to the point where I'm now worried that this is going to implode and destroy and by the market implo- for And by insurance. implosion, you mean bankruptcy? You mean sick um, people, sicker people than before? I, I think that... Uh, Jonathan is way more optimistic than I that a death spiral is impossible. Um, for one thing, you know, a lot of the the thing that everyone has been leaning very hard on, um, I, I haven't heard the insurers saying that they're real pleased with the mix. Uh, Humana and other people have said it's it's more adverse than they expected. No, at the, um, the J.P. Morgan conference, a series of insurers were interviewed, and they all said that they were generally expecting getting what they expected. Um, but but that neither leaving that point aside. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, like he can say yes, they have, and we can say no, they haven't, and you guys don't know either way. Yeah, so I'm, I think I'm actually with her on that. Um, <laughs> Unless were any of you at that conference? And, I was. There were a series of them quoted at the J.P. Morgan conference on January fifteenth. There were also a series of insurers quoted saying that they'd had adverse and they've announced <laughs> that, that they're reductions. announcing earnings adjustments because of their adverse selection. But that's not really even even the issue is that, you know, a lot of the, the mechanisms they're depending on are these things called these risk corridors, which are temporary kind of reinsurance facilities to help insurers transition. Um, and also the fact that these subsidies basically grow with the cost of the policy so that if we do start seeing adverse selection if we do see young people not in the pool, healthy people not in the pool, so costs go up, well, then the subsidies will rise and, and these risk quarters will kick in. But those things end in 2018. Subsidy All growth right, let's, is capped. Let's, let's let Jonathan Shade jump in. Right. But what's, what, what we're seeing right now is that they're not even going to need that kind of adjustment in the first place because they're, they're saying the pool of people is young enough that it's meeting their expectations, that they don't need to raise premiums whatsoever. And so if you want to – if, if you have to ask, what is the definition of success? The definition of success is putting in place a law that will get at a certain point to having a, a dramatic expansion of coverage. So your table, your, at one point you said, well, by January 1st, there aren't as many people covered as there were before. I said we that's, don't know. Right, we the don't know. The government will You're not right. – the administration correct. will not say right. we don't that know we have exactly. more people covered. Right, we don't know this number of people who had their plans canceled. It's, it's way less than 5 million. We don't know, so we can't say exactly how many more were covered. But why is January 1st, the first day the law started, the, 
the, the, the, red, the best mark. The, the law is supposed to Stop right period there because I want to hear the answer to that question. We, we know this pool is exceedingly unhealthy by virtue of the No, no, no. That's, that's not, his question is why, why set January 1st on the day that everything has to be successful? It's a fair question. I'd just that, like to hear the answer to it. Seems and like Megan, a Megan, take it. Totally fair question. Um, but again, this is so much worse than I would have predicted. I was a critic of the law. But if you had asked me, is it likely that there could be fewer people insured, even a small number, on January 1st, I would have said, no, that's insane. Um, but that may actually be the, the administration won't. It's not asking them how many people. When, when reporters on conference calls say, can you assure us that more people are insured through anything, through private insurance, through Medicaid, they won't say yes. What, is it, what does it tell you that nobody, people don't want this coverage? The administration on the conference call, which I was on the other day and they announcing this data, bragged about the fact that 44.5 million people went to the website and started to look at health plans. We know only 1.2 million signed up. That conversion rate is worse than banner ads. It's worse than sex ads on Twitter. I mean, that is a bad conversion rate. That tells you people are looking at these plans and not buying them because they're not good plans for consumers because they weren't designed to be. Doug Cameron. Yeah, I want to go back and, and ask the question to you all again. If, if in fact, you're saying that Obamacare is beyond... Doug, I just want to point out, if you keep asking questions, you don't get to talk. <laughs> Well, but, but the point of the debate is to say that it's beyond, you know, either it's beyond rescue or it's not beyond rescue. So you guys say can't be saved, can't be fixed. What's, what's, what's the plan then? Uh, well, actually, they don't need to actually answer that question <laughs> technically to win this debate. Uh, but I, w I will say that uh, Mr. Tate said that I'm against national health care, which is actually not true. Um, I, I have long been proposing uh, that the government should provide catastrophic reinsurance for people uh, basically picking up medical costs above 15% of their income. It's something that preserves a market mechanism. It's progressive. Everyone is, you know, you're, you're taking care of it. And obviously you would have something for the very poor. But, um, but otherwise it's progressive. It preserves the market mechanism. And it makes sure that people do not get bankrupted by their medical bills. I think, it's a, I think that is actually the kind of system that you could grow out of Obamacare if it fails. Jonathan Chase. The reason I wrote that you're against national health care is because in 2009 you wrote a column called Why I Oppose National Health Care. <laughs> I, I don't see how we can even be disputing this. You, you've also predicted, a few months ago, you were predicting the exchanges might not even open on January 1st, that the administration would have to just stop its whole law. So if you're talking about moving the goalposts, your definition of failure just keeps getting smaller and smaller. Well, I'm, right? just, I, I'm just saying that in 2010 and 2011 and 2012 and 2013, I have written that uh, I, I support this sort of catastrophic reinsurance program. I've been proposing it for a fairly long time. Let me tell you what Despar looks like. Um, every year, this is a provision in a law that people haven't noticed yet. Every year that these subsidies and the, the sort of value of the health plan sold in this law get repriced. In Medicare Part D, they also get repriced. The subsidies get repriced. They get repriced each year for blended average of all the plans in the marketplace. So you've had a conversion to sort of a mean value for plans. In this marketplace, they get repriced off the second cheapest plan in every market. The second cheapest plan in Florida is a plan in, that has seven pediatricians for a county with 250,000 kids. Next year, all the policies in Florida will now be repriced off that plan. So all the plans will have to conform to that benefit structure. That's a death spiral. You're using the word death spiral in a way that no one in healthcare economics ever uses it. It's a death spiral in the quality of the coverage. You end up with a plan that looks like Medicaid. Now, again, I haven't heard anyone defend Medicaid. Do you guys want to – anybody I, on this I, side I actually want to defend I'll, Medicaid? I'll, I'll happily deal with – I Doug will defend Medicaid. Doug Kemmerer. 
Well, I, I, I want to go back to your point, though, well, that you just, – Just as the point is out there right now, and the reason I bring it up is that, uh, is that in his opening statement, Scott uh, em- emphasized that essentially Obamacare is really a Medicaid plan, and the problem with that is he talked about the outcomes for Medicaid are not satisfactory. So I think it's a valid – point for him to at least have put out there, and I'd like to hear yeah, I think one it. of the things we have to remember is that this law changes lots of things. It doesn't just change the coverage. It also talks about who's going to be taking care of patients for Medicaid, what, what the doctors are going to be paid. As you know, as a practicing doctor or where you practice, a lot of places don't take Medicaid, and they don't take it because the rates are laughable. The reimbursement is very low. It's not because I don't think it's something about the fact that the patients have a certain problem that they're not willing to deal with seems unlikely. It's a matter of dollars and cents. One of the things this does is, at least temporarily and presumably could be extended, raise the rates of Medicaid to Medicare. A lot of doctors take care of Medicare Medicare patients. And also, I I would think that you'd be happy to see that these kinds of, what seemed to me at least, speaking not from the inside, as a conservative philosophy, that you're saying, look, if this doesn't work very well, clearly these high-priced providers, wherever they are, are going to have to make some kind of a change. These hospitals or other places that are going to be left out of the networks right. pretty soon, they're not going to have Godly. people to go. I'm Scott unhappy Godly. giving people a false promise. We've done that with Medicaid, and we've done it now with Obamacare. Obamacare will evolve into Medicaid. Um, it, it will be the same quality, the same narrow networks, the because, same quarter. Because you're predicting it. Well, it's already happening. I mean, if you look at the quality of these plans, if you look at the networks, and I have, I'm putting out data on this next week. I hope everyone goes to my website and sees it. Um, <laughs> if you look at the networks in Obamacare, they are Medicaid networks. If you look at the plans that, have, that are preparing bids for next year, it's Medicaid plans that didn't get into the market this year. This will evolve into a Medicaid benefit. We didn't need to obligate people to a Medicaid benefit, and we have done nothing to, exist, to fix the existing Medicaid benefit. The changes you talk about was a temporary increase, a small increase in payment to primary care providers that now sunsetted at the very point that we're going to push 19 more million people into Medicaid. Can you imagine trying to service 19 more million people with the existing Medicaid program? What is that going to look like? First of all, you keep saying obligate people to Medicaid, but I don't think the word means what you think it means. No one's obligated to go on Medicaid. People are offered to go on Medicaid, and they very rationally choose to go on Medicaid. Because it's free. Right. Now, our opponents have made two different claims about Medicaid. Scott's made a a terrible argument about the quality of Medicaid, and and Megan's made one that's merely bad. Scott's Scott's argument, he's he's obliquely citing studies that have have taken two populations, one of which is on Medicaid and one of which is not on Medicaid and compared their health. Now, if you're on Medicaid, you're in a terrible place. Something has gone bad in your life. You're very poor. You're very sick. Bad things are happening to you. So a lot of studies comparing these two people are comparing two completely different kinds of populations, and finding the people on Medicaid are worse off. Jonathan, Those are studies people don't take seriously. Studies control the better that. study that Megan cites is still not a very good use of data. It's not a good use of data for two reasons, if I may. Very, <laughs> number one... Very briefly, but you've got two people lined up to defend themselves. Right. So there are a series of studies in the effectiveness of Medicaid. Many of these studies, most of them show what you would intuitively think. Going on Medicaid and being able to see doctors, even if you don't get a lot of choice, even if a lot of doctors don't want to take the low prices, is better than not having health insurance and not going to go to the doctor at all. Because, as my partner explained in fairly strong detail, not having health insurance is dangerous, it's terrible, nobody wants to have it, and people are right not to want it. Megan McArdle. Well, so here's actually... So here's something interesting is a lot of these studies have looked at Medicaid versus the uninsured, and the uninsured do better 
having no insurance is better in these studies than having Medicaid, even when you control for a host of things. Now, that said, do I think that having Medicaid is actually worse than being uninsured? No, I don't. It's very hard to actually measure a lot of the things but uh, that you, you would want to know about, say, impulse control or social support and, and, and so forth. Um, but I think that most people agree that Medicaid is bad coverage. It's not good coverage. You wouldn't want to go on it. And there are people who had cheap policies canceled, um, got cancellation notices, and found that when they went to the exchanges, they were shunted into Medicaid. That so has happened let, to I some people. So I'm not Scott, go, Scott, go ahead, and then I want to ask a question. Yeah, I, I think the, the discussion about Medicaid is operative here because this is, this is a real dilemma that I can't get to the bottom of. People feel good about Medicaid in Washington. I, I work in Washington. People look at the benefits that are being promised on paper in Medicaid and think that it is a fabulous program. The practical reality for anyone who works in the medical marketplace knows that's just not the case. We have done the same thing with Obamacare. We have promised something that looks very good on paper. The practical reality that's already taking shape in the marketplace is people are not going to be able to get the what they're being promised on paper. And so the question becomes, why do we feel good about what we do in Washington on paper when the reality doesn't approximate what we've said we set All out right. to well, do? Well, that actually takes me to... to <laughs> that takes me to my question, because my sense of what this motion says is that the Rube Goldberg machine that Megan described the Obamacare plan being is doomed finally to crash, come crashing to a halt. And your opponents are saying it may be a Rube Goldberg machine, but it's going to keep moving in its fashion, and it already is moving, and things are happening, and it can be tweaked around the edges. You're, dis- you're not actually describing a Rube Goldberg machine coming to a halt. You're describing a Rube Goldberg machine producing an outcome that you don't like. Well, no, I, was I, I mean, an inefficient. If it's, if it's <laughs> Medicaid, it's not good. Well, but and, it, and, and that's fair enough if that's your argument. But it's not an outcome I don't like. It's, it, it, no, no, no know, but, but I don't mean ideologically. I mean, you're saying it's an outcome that nobody should cherish that, that it, it's going to be more sick people at more cost with less competition. Is that what, we, what you mean by beyond repair? It's not what we set out to do. We set out to achieve something, and we're, we're, not, even, we're not even pretending that we're going to achieve it. I mean, I, they can't defend that Medicaid is an abysmal benefit in terms of what it's promised and what it's delivering, and Obamacare won't evolve into a Medicaid-like benefit. Take two benefit. sentences, either one of you, to say what you think the Obama, the, the Obama White House plan uh, hoped to achieve and how we're falling short of it already. <laughs> Well, I don't. I, I mean, I, I think Megan that McCardle. what they hoped to achieve was a program that, even if it wasn't perfect, would be politically self sustaining in that it would be impossible to repeal because so many people would love it. And I think that's one of the key issues with Medicaid okay. and with these narrow networks is people aren't going to love these and aren't going to fight to keep it. Okay, great. Then that's, that's a point I want to bring to the other side. Because, because there's the, the argument being made here that for the program to sustain, there needs to be an issue of public trust, enthusiasm, and participation so that people will sign up for it. And they're saying that they're concerned that with the way things are going, that won't happen, and that does make it unsustainable. And I want to take that to the other side, either Doug or Jonathan Jay. Again, remember, the proposition here is beyond repair. So they're not, that's not a claim about beyond repair. That's a, that's a claim about something that might happen in the future that, that they can plausibly say will lead I, to the I think law it's a, I think it's a fair, a fair sort of trend line argument, though. I mean, you may, I'm not right. taking their so, side, but, but I, think it's, <laughs> I, I, think it's, I think it's food for thought, and I'd right. like to see you chew on it So the bit. initial projections were... Were CBO said they they guessed about seven million people would be would be in the exchanges by the end of the open enrollment period in March. Now the website was broken for the first two months, and it wasn't just people could enroll. That means the whole outreach campaign that the administration, its outside allies, and the insurers had planned to direct people to this website, which was broken, had to be put off. So 
basically, we've lost two-thirds of the time to enroll people in the exchanges that we've had. October, November, December. Only December wasn't working. Yet, so in one-third of the time they've had available, they've enrolled two-thirds of the, of the target they were supposed to have in the exchanges. They thought by the end of December they would have three million and said they had two million. So that seems yeah, to me they're, like but there's they're a saying high to, demand. They're, they're saying it does need to be popular yeah. to succeed and that it's not popular and they don't think it's going to become Jonathan, popular. Well, I, I, well I'm, I shouldn't speak for you if you want to speak, Scott. Go ahead. And then I want to go to questions from the audience right after this. This is very quickly evolving into a plan to service. It's a high-risk pool to service people who have pre-existing conditions and were, uh, were priced out of the prior market or aren't in an existing insurance pool, and those below 200 percent of the federal poverty level who benefit enough from the subsidies to make these plans even partially affordable. 400%. That's about 20. Well, once you get above 200 percent of the federal poverty level, these plans are, are more expensive than what you could have gotten in the existing individual market. If you look at the numbers, they're subsidized up to 400 percent. The subsidies fall off at 250 percent quite rapidly. Um, that's about 20 million people. My question is, why did we, if we wanted to target 20 million people, um, which is what this law inevitably is going to end up doing, why did we have to disrupt the insurance scheme for 350 million Americans? I mean, well, everyone was affected by this. We didn't. And there's simply no evidence of any of that disruption. All right. I want to no give evidence. audience questions. I how, want many to people, how many people got notices from uh, their insurance uh, uh, plans that their plans were changed or canceled this year? I guess it's New York City. <laughs> That's enough. All right. That works so well on radio when the, <laughs> when the hands go up. For the radio uh, audience, a scattering of hands went up. I want to remind you that we are in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan, your moderator. We have four debaters, two teams of two, debating this motion. Obamacare is now beyond rescue. Let's go to some audience questions. And I have to go like that to see. Um, sir, in the reddish shirt. I'm not good with color description once we're off the basic red. So, Chartreuse. If you can stand up and tell us your name, please. And again, I need it to be a question, and if it's not on point, I'll have to pass. Thanks. Go ahead. Hi, guys. My name is David, and my question is, if you can't determine who has enrolled and who has canceled, how will you be able to in, uh, in, input the penalties that are created through the Obamacare plan? Well, I, I think that the penalties are irrelevant. Um, nobody, nobody actually believes those penalties are going to be enforced. They're just a clawback on your, on your tax return if you're owed a, owed a refund. Uh, a clever accountant can easily um, structure your tax return so that you would never have to pay a penalty. I think everyone recognizes the, the individual mandate, the so-called tax penalty, um, really isn't an operative feature in this anymore and will probably be suspended this year, but they will wait until after March 31st to do it. Yeah, I would also guess that sometime in April the administration will announce that the uh, mandate's not going to be enforced for uh, 2014. It's just too, everything's been too disrupted and, and not going according to plan, and they will have people who lost insurance and didn't get it, and just the political backlash. But this is all of a piece with slowly dismantling bits of the law in order to preserve its, its temporary political viability. Would the other side like to also answer the question? Uh, I'm not sure why they have Doug a crystal Cameron. ball that says it's going to be, uh, it's going to be delayed. But even if it is delayed, it still doesn't go to the point that it's not going to ultimately be useful. And even despite the tax dodges that people like Dr. Gottlieb have access to. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, Scott, my mistake, that Scott have access to. Even without those, there's, there's a, a bit of a moral imperative here. People don't like to break the law. People don't like to do what they're not supposed to do. And that's one of the reasons, a moral imperative, that was put in there. Another question. Oh, sir, right down front here. Sorry. I, I'll come to this side next. So uh, my question is with the, for Scott and uh, Megan. So, Can you tell us oh, your name, please? My name is Rahul Chadaha. Mm -hmm. So clearly Obamacare is a large-scale complex change. My question is, are you 
opposing the intentions, execution, or both of this large-scale reform change? Well, look, I'll, I'll let Megan speak for herself. I, I was quite clear, and I've been quite clear when I've talked about this law. I think the, the, the goals here were laudable. I think we have to do something to try to help people who are priced out of the insurance market or people who found themselves uh, in between plans and didn't have, weren't in insurance pools where they had portability. Uh, we could have addressed those issues in a far more austere bill that didn't disrupt and, and create so many dislocations in the marketplace. Um, I think we still can. I'm, this isn't the edifice to do it. We, I, I, okay, Scott, you, I, I'm going to go, go to Megan because you've actually made that point a couple of times because I actually asked the same question, but not in that, that very good way, so I'd like to hear Megan answer it. Um, do, I, do I have the intentions of protecting families from the financial damage of medical bills? Uh, absolutely. Do I think that the execution was good? I, I think that's a hard argument to make. Um, but, you know, I also think that there are, there are better structures and that this attempt to, like, preserve everything that any person in the United States had, which we already know wasn't possible because they didn't manage to do it, um, while simultaneously layering a bunch of new stuff on top of that was just a, a, an inherently flawed design. I don't think that I understood that it would be executed so badly, but I... So, so your answer is both? Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Ma'am, uh, right there, yeah. Hi, I'm Dana. Um, so we've seen, as we've said, um, universal health care being successfully implemented in other similar countries to the U.S. Can we explain why it can work there and not here? Or are there learnings that we can take to adapt the current uh, system can, to can make you, it more you, successful? Can you rephrase that question that, that gets them to talk, to talk about whether it's beyond repair? Okay, so can we take... Can we take lessons from successful implementation of universal health care in, or, in order to prevent Obamacare from being unsuccessful or beyond repair? Thank you. I think that did that. Uh, that's a question I think that's for this side, so I'm going to let them take it. I'll let you give you a response depending on what they say. Uh, and if somebody has a question for this side who's not getting many, we'd like to have some parity. Uh, Megan McArdle. Um, I think of it as sort of like the Autobahn, which is great, but I wouldn't necessarily say that you could just build that in the United States now. We already have a highway system. Um, and so looking at what another country has done with a really long history is helpful in the sense that you can, you can see elements that work, but that doesn't mean that we can have Germany's healthcare system. We have a different set of doctors and nurses and patients and all sorts of things. Um, and that's why I like the idea of a kind of very American, we're going to have the government insure your financial losses after a certain point, but we're going to leave you out there as a market-driven consumer making choices about what sort of health care you want. Um, when, you, when you get sick. Uh, I'd like to respond I, to that. I think that's exactly Doug the Cameron. point, it, and that is uh, if you don't like a state-run uh, kind of program, uh, then, you know, you, you don't like the kind of systems that are elsewhere. And you can say we're not the same, we're different. But it is interesting that every advanced economy uh, in the West uh, – and some parts of the East, has these kinds of programs, and yet there's something special about us where we can't seem, apparently, to figure out a way to do it here. We've got to have some special American take on it. So I think we probably can learn a lot. I think we probably can learn a lot from other countries. Well, you know, we... I mean, we have, look, we have a market that's much more fragmented, a much larger country. We have people who want to exercise more choice in, in, in their benefits design. We have people who have higher expectations than what many people are willing to um, acquiesce to in other countries. And one final point I'd make is that 
The structures in Obamacare that I've talked about tonight, the narrow networks, the closed drug formularies, I guarantee you they're going to be showing up in your commercial plans in the next two years. These structures will not be confined to Obamacare. They will now migrate into the commercial marketplace. Jonathan I Here's one way to tie this together is for years and years when you asked conservatives about national health reform, they would, they would say some horror story, right? They would say some man in Canada walked 100 miles in the snow and lost his feet because of the socialist horrors of, of Canada to come to the freedom of America and every Everyone in Britain has lost their teeth because of the, the, the NIH. And all these, you know, weird kind of mix of but anecdotes and half-truths. And that was sort of like, that was what was like floating around out there. And I think what's happened here is that all these horror stories have simply migrated to the United States and now describe Obamacare. And they've kind of forgotten all about the horrors of socialized medicine. And the way that they understood national health insurance in these other countries is now the way they understand national health insurance in the United States in this very partial, anecdotal, kind of slightly hysterical way. I'm so, I'm so tempted to ask who in the audience is British and would like to smile at us <laughs> right now. Our motion is Obamacare is now beyond rescue. And I'm saying that because I've repeatedly said it's beyond repair. The motion language is beyond rescue, but you can read it behind me. Let's go to another question right down front here. If you, if you rise, they'll find you with the mic. Thanks. I'm Michelle. Um, I'd love to ask the, uh, the group against the motion to have a chance to explain why um, the Obamacare needs a bit more time for it to play out. I find it a little bit um, unrealistic that uh, partisan zealots in Washington are ready to kill it, and it's only a couple of months out of the gate. And I'd love to hear them explain to the audience why and how Obamacare is going to succeed over the next year. Uh, Jonathan Chain or... Do, do we well, Jonathan you know, Chase. I think it's kind of self-evident that this, this target date that we've heard from the other side of are things better by January 1st is, is, is oddly irrelevant, the first day that the law is actually in operation. The point is to make a change over a series of years. Now, the outreach campaign to the public is something that by definition just takes months and months and months and years and years and years to build up. And no one envisioned that the law would reach its coverage target even under the best circumstances in the first year. And again, the website was busted. So, the, so in 2013, they lost two-thirds of the available time. So naturally, you're just going to move back the target for the ramp-up. You're going to hit it more slowly. But nothing about that process changes the law's ability to, to fundamentally reach its goals in the course of time. Responsibly. Oh, go ahead, Doug, and then I'll confuse We're you. We're also making a huge change here. There's no question about that, and it takes time to do that. Plus, lots of the law has things that are demonstrations, that are experiments, that are trying to find different ways to improve things, and we're not going to know the results of those for a year, two years, or even more. And they can, the nice thing about it is that the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services can then ramp those up when they find, when they find successes in demonstrations to show how you can help do all-payer kinds of things, incentivize patient-centered medical homes, those kinds of things that are out there being tested right now. Other side, respond? Well, look, I, you know, I'll just make one comment to follow up on what Doug said. The, the, what, what Doug's talked about a lot here tonight, the payment reforms, these are things we've been talking about for a decade. Um, they're, they're not a key feature of Obamacare, although they're in the law. We could have done a lot of that without disrupting the entire commercial insurance marketplace. These were bipartisan ideas. I'm not sure that Obamacare is going to successfully implement them anyway. I'll just give you one anecdote. Um, they, they have a new law that hospitals get penalized for readmissions, and so hospitals are admitting fewer patients, and when patients show up in the ER, they're being put on what's called observation statuses, sitting in the hospital for 36 hours, not being admitted, um, and since they're not admitted to the hospital, it's considered outpatient, so they're being hit with 20% copays on that. So we're just cost-shifting to patients. And, of course, other hospitals are 
working on programs where they have outreach workers for the first time to try to follow up the patients. This isn't Obamacare, Doug. These were ideas we could have done apart from disrupting the entire it's market. Very, Scott, it's very much part of, the, of Obamacare. I mean, you're saying Obamacare is beyond rescue. We're saying there's lots of parts that are doing good things and interesting Obamacare things. Obamacare is a federalization of insurance, though. That's, that's what Obamacare is. I mean, this was, a, this was a feature added into Obamacare. We could have done it as a separate bill. It's part of the law and it's working, and you're saying this functional part of the law could, might have been passed without Obamacare. But well, is, it an unsuccessful, is it an unsuccessful not, federalization but, but they, of health care? It's, it's or, bait and switch. They're arguing components of Obamacare that's not the essence of what, what the law set out to do. There were things that were attached to Obamacare. The Sunshine Act's part of Obamacare. No, the law, the law set out to do things to reform the cost structure of medicine to control costs, and it, by all evidence, is succeeding beyond the best expectations. You know, the recession lowered medical spending. Let's there be were honest. Two goals. So, even the government's actuaries say, even you know, CMS economists are saying that it was the recession, not Obamacare. But look, you know, is everything in Obamacare going to go away? No. Obamacare involved, for example, changes to the student loan program. Are those going to get rolled back if the insurance <laughs> markets don't work out? No. Um, the question is, are the major superstructures going to, to stay in place? And especially the things that you needed to do of, of a piece. You know, are... We're going to go back to kids. Or we're going to take kids under 26 off their parents' insurance. I doubt it. But that doesn't, you know, you are, are you pass this whole law to Megan, do that. Megan, are you saying that those that those few examples of things that are popular and working are fringe to the basic that, concept? That's entirely fringe. Okay, to the, well, are those the, things fringe to the basic concept of Obamacare? I want to put to the side that was arguing those points. No. I mean, the law, the law intended to do a lot of things. It intended to cover people in a lot of ways. Covering people under 26, that was the way they covered people under 26. But controlling costs, what it decided to do was not have one big blunt force way to hold down medical inflation. They, they let a thousand flowers bloom and change the incentive structure in a lot of ways. And there's a lot of good evidence. That it's okay, really so what we have here is sure. a basic disagreement about what we mean by Obamacare. It's a big law with a lot of, with two major goals accomplished in a bunch of different ways. All right, but I mean, you both need to persuade the audience that what you're talking about is the Obamacare that we're arguing about. Right. And you, as an audience, mem as audience members, you need to consider that. It's um, right down in front here. I guess my question would be to uh, both sides. Uh, being that it is a large, you know, pooled plan, meaning that it has to be popular, how much would you say that the backlash from Republicans is instead of making it pr pretty much not work as a whole, is just kind of delaying it working by spreading all of this venom about I, it? I, I'm going to pass on the question because I think they actually addressed that. I think it's a great question, but I think that it was addressed in the opening that, in, in fact, they feel that, that uh, when they're talking about moving the definition of failure, I think Jonathan Chait covered that. Right in the corner there, ma'am. Here comes the mic for you. Hi, my name is Jennifer, and my question is, uh, both positions admitted that there's a lack of metrics around the program. If we lack quantitative data, which we use to assess our organizations and businesses' health, then how do we measure the potential sustainability of the program? Good question. So what, where I said we lack the metrics is how many people had their plans, their private insurance plans canceled. That's what we, we don't know. And that's the kind of negative sum in their ledger that they're trying to say the law failed. We don't really know that no one has good. But we do know who's signing up. We've got very good met metrics on that. So do we know how many people are going in the exchanges, how many people are going in Medicaid, and what's happening to health care costs? All those things can be measured and are being measured and are all very positive. 
Yeah, there's, met, there's absolutely metrics around this program. The problem is the administration doesn't want to release the numbers. As far as the cancellations, you made the point a few times. Um, it, is, it is $5 million. It might be more. You, all you need to do is look at the analyst reports around Aetna, United, and Humana, which are three very large insurers, and it, it comes to something very close to that. So we know people had their policies outright canceled. We know many millions more had them changed in substantive ways where it was no longer affordable to them. I have a question from Twitter uh, from Jerry Weinstein or Weinstein. Or Weinstein or Weinstein? <laughs> it's not Weinstein. No, it's two I's, E-I-E-I. Jerry Weinstein at Tumblr 10. Uh, he asks to the side that is opposing the ACA, which is actually the side arguing for our motion that Obamacare is now beyond rescue, uh, tell us how successful was the Romney Care launch in Massachusetts and where is that program now? Well, in some Megan ways, it, it, it lowered the number of the uninsured. It did it in its first year, which I'm, I'm not clear we're doing now. But um, in other ways, it didn't do what it was expecting to do. For example, they had expected to really lower the rate of uncompensated care, which is something that you hear a lot about. Um, and they did lower it somewhat, but it came in at only about 40 percent lower than, than projections instead of the 100 percent lower they'd basically been expecting. Uh, costs are still going up. Um, Medical bankruptcies don't seem to have abated nearly as much as you would think, given how much insurance, um, you know, they've now, they're now the, by far the lowest rate of uninsured people in the nation. But Massachusetts is also a little bit hard to compare to the rest of the country. They already had the lowest rate of uninsured people in the country before they started this. They've got a weird mix of employers. You had a lot more employer-based insurance than you're going to get in Texas. They have many fewer illegal immigrants and even legal immigrants which is one of the big areas uh, where you see uninsured people for kind of understandable Scott, reasons. Scott, you'd like to, to and, jump and on we the also, We've seen costs go up in Massachusetts, and Massachusetts was a market that was saturated with providers, so it was easy to get leverage on them and burn them down. It's going to be a little harder to do that in Obamacare, but I think they'll get there. Other side, I'd like to take the Massachusetts question. I don't think that you need to, to make your point, so let's go down to the front row there. Oh, I, I, no, I, I, oh Jonathan, I, I'm sorry. I, I, I would like see. to, actually. Um, there's a huge amount of data. It contradicts what the other t- side is saying. Let me cite one. Two Urban Institute researchers published a study finding that the number of adults reporting that they skipped care because of high costs in Massachusetts fell from 17% to 11% in the first two years of the law. So I think of all the things it's trying to do is stop people who can't get health care because they can't afford it. That was the main goal of the law, and it succeeded. Okay, question down here. Um, if you can stand up, that's how they find you. Thanks. Hi, I'm Erica. I'm just wondering um, what aspects of the law were put into effect that lowered costs by 2012 of o- overall health insurance? Uh, Jonathan or Doug, would you like to take this? Sounds like it's for your side. Here, do you want to start? Well, it, see, there are a number of things, and, and one of those is getting people into care so that they don't have... By 2012. Right. It, we really, there were a lot of cost reforms in the way that hospitals were compensated that happened before 2012, right? So instead of Jonathan. paying people based on more care, you, the more medicine you perform, the more money you get, it changed to models where people get paid based on providing quality of care and actually in measurable ways improving patients' health. So one of the ways is, is it penalized hospitals that have high rates of infections because previously hospitals, if, you're, if your patients get an infection, that's a bonus for you. They have to go back in the hospital and get treated again and you make more money. So instead the law changes saying, no, we're going to penalize you if you have a high rate of infection and the rate of infection has actually fallen. There's a, there's a wide series of reforms like this to change the cost structure of American medicine and I think a lot of researchers have looked at this and concluded that it's actually working in, in changing the cost model and making people try to provide quality instead of just more and more care for more and more money. Jonathan, looks like you're 
opponents want to challenge that? Um, so there's a, lot of, there's a lot of changes in the law that are supposed to control costs. There are some that took effect immediately, uh, like the hospital readmission, but that was only in Medicare. And the cost reductions have been occurring across the board, not just in Medicare. A recent paper at Brookings suggested that it's probably due to a combination of the recession and technological slowdown mostly, um, is that we haven't had a lot of innovation for whatever reason in the last few years. Um, going forward, there are things like accountable care organizations. I think they're not looking as great as we thought that they were. Um, other issues with electronic medical records also not looking as great as we had hoped, and some Medicare pilot programs, and eventually a comparative effectiveness board that is supposed to sort of slow Medicare cost if it doesn't come down um, on its own. But all of most of that stuff uh, hasn't really either hasn't finished being implemented or isn't expected to return dividends or is going to be started being implemented this year. Most, most of the cost control provisions in this law are forms of capitation to transfer risk to providers. That's how the law seeks to control costs. That's what accountable care organizations are, bundled payments, shared savings. It's all forms of capitation. And that's what we're seeing in the marketplace. That's why doctors are selling their practices to hospitals so they can form larger entities and take that capitated risk. If you think that's a good idea, then you're for this law. So right in the center there. Exactly. And Mike will come to you from this side. Hi, I'm Dave. Thank you so much, Intelligence Squared, and thank you to the debaters. Um, make it fast. 2.7 million people under the age of 30 out of 7 million enrollees is what hinges Obamacare's success. Social Security and Medicare, $66 trillion in deficits. What provisions to the side against? What provisions in the law are there to ensure Obamacare does not result in financial failure, like Social Security and Medicare, when it hinges on taking from the young to give to the old, when the demographics clearly suggest this is unsustainable? Thank you. <laughs> and it's a sort of big philosophical question which wraps up everything that we've been talking about, so I think we should take it. And well, I think Jay, and that, and that, and that's, exactly, that's exactly what insurance is about. And so if you don't want to have a system where people contribute so that the entire population benefits, then you don't have a system like that. But as a youngish person, I can't quite see uh, yourself, uh, you know, you may feel that this is a big problem. Guess what? There's a future you, and the future you <laughs> is going to be much older, and it's going to be... <laughs> if he walks carefully in traffic, because... <laughs> Megan McCartley, want to respond? Um... You know, I, I think that that is a political issue. Uh, we already on net transfer a lot to older people, and, and a lot of the setup here is, is transferring more, more to older people and to sicker people, um, which is a kind of a separate issue. It's actually kind of interesting how few uh, people, how little the transfers are until you get to be about 50, um, and I know we're all hoping to make it there. But... Uh, um, is that politically sustainable when that's a minority of the voting base and when they're already getting most of the, the transfers and growing every day and when the budget is under strain, when we have to find ways to cut? Um, I do question that. I question whether in 20 years we're still going to be gung-ho about giving money to people over the age of 50 instead of people over the All age right. of 65. A great question because it really wraps up what this whole debate has been about. And that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate where our motion is Obamacare is now beyond rescue. So we're going to have you vote shortly. We're going to have closing statements in a moment and remind, remind you that you'll be voting again immediately afterwards for the second time. And it's the difference between those two votes that determines our winners. Uh, we do this, this section seated. So 
On to round three, closing statements by each debater in turn. They will be three minutes each. And here to summarize his position against this motion that says Obamacare is now beyond rescue, Dr. Douglas Camero, a family doctor and former assistant attorney general. Ladies and gentlemen, Douglas Camero. Brief correction. Never been an attorney or an assistant attorney general. What did I say? It's okay. You want to be an, a, you're surgeon. surgeon general. Do you want me to say that you're, you're an attorney general? You know no, the magic no offense, of the, no offense to the attorneys out there. The, the, ma- the magic of editing. Uh, uh, I'm going to say it again so that the radio producer can make me seem a lot smarter than I am. <laughs> Here to summarize his position against the motion, Douglas, uh, Dr. Douglas Camero, a family doctor and former assistant surgeon general. Thank you very much, John, and and thanks to you and the uh, IQ2 sponsors and to Megan and Scott for a spirited debate. I want to thank the audience as well. The motion that we're talking about is Obamacare is now beyond rescue. We've had a lot of fun uh, throwing statistics back and forth and trying to make clever remarks, but it seems to me this really comes down to a very personal question. Given where we are, what's come before, what's likely to happen in two scenarios, we keep Obamacare or we dump it, what should we do? And uh, like most of us, I could cite personal stories about health care coverage and access, recent ones, about friends who had trouble getting coverage because pre-existing conditions, and now with uh, the, the, the um, Obamacare, see their insurance and drug costs decrease markedly, 75%. Uh, or about young people, like two of our kids, who've already gotten affordable insurance coverage between college and their first jobs. But I think really the most telling story that I want to mention in conclusion is about Medicaid, much maligned in this, in this discussion today. But 35 years ago, my first job in the public health service was working as a GP in the National Service Corps in a community health center in an urban underserved part of town. But because that city was in this state, that is in, in New York State, a state that had a, and still has a generous Medicaid program, most of our patients had insurance. Most of our patients had access to care. They were poor. They were working or disabled. But they had health care. They had a medical home. And they had prescription drug benefits. And they benefited from it, despite what you've heard here today. A lot of good care is delivered to Medicaid patients. When I later moved to Washington, D.C. and looked for a job in Virginia, Doug, asked I about Medicaid. You have 10 seconds left. I'll wow. give you an extra five. So okay. cut to the chase. One, <laughs> I want to say that because of Obamacare, a lot of people are going to have Medicaid, but also a lot of doctors are going to be paid more because to take care of Medicaid. And there's more money for the National Service Corps with doctors right. like me taking care of them. Thank you, Thank Doug Camero. Our motion is Obamacare is now beyond rescue. And here in, to summarize his position in support of the motion, Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He's a practicing physician and a former FDA deputy commissioner. Ladies and gentlemen, Scott Gottlieb. If I, were to, if I were asked to distill down Obamacare's central flaw, it would simply be this. The law tries to exert so much control over aspects of medicine and health care that are subject to so much heterogeneity uh, and individualism that nobody should ever have thought that they could be micromanaged from a remote bureaucracy in Washington and a big piece of legislation. The result 
is what you're seeing, an over-engineering that may have started out elegant on someone's flowcharts but became undone when it was subjected to political realities and the marketplace, and, it had, and the marketplace had to conform to its rules. And the result is a massive exercise in unintended consequences and a health insurance po- product that clearly people don't want. Um, people are saying this is just a rough start, but I will tell you this will get worse as this scheme unfolds. Uh, there's already evidence plans aren't entering the market for 2015. Premiums certainly will rise next year, probably not as much as we thought because of the reinsurance pools, but those pools eventually go away. Small businesses will dump people uh, once their grandfathering is up at the end of this year, and you're going to see small businesses uh, cancellation notifications. Networks and drug formularies will have to be narrowed further next year as this whole market gets repriced off the second cheapest plan in every state. Uh, And these structures in Obamacare that are so unappealing will start to evolve into the commercial marketplace, just like the Part D structures evolved into your commercial drug plans. 2014 was the high watermark for this scheme. The insurance product will only get worse from here. And this is hardly the ambition that its architects had in mind. Obamacare surely will help some people. Those below 200% of the federal poverty level will be helped by this, I think. But a lot more will be hurt as they find themselves spending more money than they previously did to buy their way out of the scheme. We didn't have to hurt some people to help some people in this country, uh, but that's precisely what we did. Thank you, Scott Gottlieb. Our motion is Obamacare is now beyond rescue. And here to speak against the motion in his summary statement, Jonathan Chait. He's a daily columnist for New York Magazine. Ladies and gentlemen, Jonathan Chait. Let me let you in on a secret. When we set up this debate back in the fall, it was a while ago, it looked like Obamacare might really collapse. The website was broken. We didn't know when it would be fixed. We didn't know if it would be fixed. Some people thought it would never be fixed. It looked like the, it was possible the law would actually not come into effect, but now it has come into effect. Now we're actually living the experience of this law. So the position that was an outlandish and somewhat exaggerated fear three months ago is now kind of silly. And I think if you look back in the history of libertarian anti-statism in America, there's a long tradition of these kinds of fear-mongering predictions. Senators who are opposed to child labor laws 100 years ago saying that children would refuse to do chores in their household. Ronald Reagan saying, if we pass Medicare, the government will tell doctors they can't live here, they can't live there, and one day we'll look back at a day when we had freedom in America and wonder what happened to it. So this is the constant recurring pattern, Social Security, all kinds of civil rights laws, labor laws. The the American far right lives in terror of government. And that's an ideal. It's ideologically understandable that they would oppose these laws. But they translate this ideological terror into a series of verifiable predictions about what will happen if these laws come into effect. And one day we're going to look back at the kinds of predictions they've been making about Obamacare, and those will go in the time capsule, and they'll look just as silly as the predictions that were made about all these other reforms, which is not to say that it works perfectly. It's not to say those other things work perfectly. Believe me, child labor was a big part of the economy 100 years ago, and when we banned it, it actually imposed a lot of disruption and pain on people. Right now, it seems obvious and easy. Back then, it was really hard. Families lost an income. But, but these changes did fundamentally work. The market responded. People responded. And I think when we look back in time, we'll see that the people who were saying the law must fail were really just people who didn't agree with its goals in the first place. Thank you, Jonathan Chait. Our motion is Obamacare is now beyond rescue. And here to summarize... Her position in support of this motion, Megan McArdle. She's a blogger and columnist for Bloomberg View. Ladies and gentlemen, Megan McArdle. 
So I, I don't want to go into dueling anecdotes. We can talk about the people who have gotten coverage, and there are people who have who couldn't get it before, and I'm happy for them. Or I could talk about the people who have written to me and said, now I can't afford coverage, and I had it before. What do I do? And I don't have anything to tell them. That's not really the assessment of the law. They're just individual stories. It doesn't tell us how it's going. And the question isn't whether the status quo was bad or whether anyone on this stage is a bad person. I think we all didn't like the status quo. We're all good people. We all want to help other Americans um, to be as healthy and as possible. The question is whether the law is undermining its own goals. And to, to think about going forward, we, you know, Mr. Tate says it's, it's now here. In fact, we still have a, a long way to go with a bunch of unpopular stuff that is going to happen. Small businesses are starting to get a wave of cancellations that is going to come through the year, and they're being asked for a lot more money. A lot of that is due to Obamacare. The Cadillac tax, 40% surcharge on generous health insurance, especially hard on companies with old sick people. But a lot of benefits managers are saying basically everyone is going to have to go to kind of light plans and scale down rather than get hit by that tax. We've got comparative effectiveness research, which is going to start determining what sorts of things Medicare will reimburse at what rates. We've got the, the individual mandate. People are gonna, aren't going to pay it this year. They pay it in 2015. As each of those things comes due, there will be an outcry from people who are affected. And the administration has so far shown no willingness to stand up Yes, you may have to uh, break an omelet to make eggs, but the administration's not going to tell the eggs that. And the Republicans certainly aren't going to make the eggs crack themselves. So if we are not willing to, to impose the pain, and so far we haven't, this law cannot survive. It is set up as a giant piece of interlocking machinery. You can't just rip the carburetor out and hope that it's still working. That is why. Obamacare is beyond rescue because we are not willing to face the hard choices that the law made necessary. Thank you, Megan McArdle. And that concludes our closing statements. And now it's time to learn which side you feel has argued best. We want you to go again to the keypads at your seat and vote now a second time after hearing the arguments. The motion is Obamacare is now beyond rescue. If you agree with this motion, push number one. If you disagree, push number two. If you're undecided, push number three. And remember, it's the difference between the opening vote and this vote that determines our winners in percentage point terms. And we'll have the results locked out in just a couple of minutes. We'll give you a few more seconds before we lock it out. Okay, we have locked out the votes, and I just want to say a couple of things. Uh, if, if I could have your attention, please. Uh, this is something that I re I really is important for us to say because the whole purpose, goal, and culture of Intelligence Squared is to raise the level of public discourse, is to get people on a stage and argue about the ideas and not about each other's characters and personalities. Just as Megan McArdle said, everybody up here is good. They all sort of kind of basically in the long run want the same thing. I just want to congratulate these debaters for bringing that spirit to this conversation. That's what we have here. And I don't think this has ever happened before, but all of the questions were good tonight. They were all really, really well phrased, and I want to thank everybody who got up and asked the question. I just wanted to ask Scott Gottlieb, I thought during the middle of the debate I saw your smartphone open on the desk and you were watching a Twitter feed. Was, was that your lifeline coming in there? <laughs> 
Yeah, well, <laughs> watching a live tweet about myself sounds like something I would do. Uh, <laughs> we'd like you all to tweet about this debate. Use the Twitter handle at IQ2US. The hashtag is Obamacare. Uh, uh, we want to also talk about our upcoming debates. We've made a change to our lineup. Our debate next month, it's on February 12th. The topic was going to be on labor unions. That has been moved to our fall 2014 debate. Taking its place, we're going to do it here at the Kaufman. The motion will be Grant Snowden clemency. Uh, arguing for the motion, we'll have Ben Wisner. He is uh, Snowden's legal advisor and director of the ACLU Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project. He'll be for the motion. Against the motion, uh, Ambassador uh, James Woolsey. He's chairman of the Foundation for Defense of Democracies and former director of Central Intelligence. His partner, also against this motion, Andrew McCarthy, a former top federal prosecutor and contributing editor at National Review. The remaining seat on that panel arguing for the motion has not been filled yet. We will announce it on our website shortly. It's not who you think. It's, you know, it's, he's... he's <laughs> The rest of our spring topics are these, Putin's Russia, we'll be doing universities and online education, we'll be doing uh, millennials in the workplace, and we'll be doing death. Uh, <laughs> we're going to be traveling up to Harvard shortly to debate affirmative action on campus and to the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia, where we will be debating the targeted killing of U.S. citizens abroad and its constitutionality. Tickets for all of our spring debates are on sale through our website, www.iq2us.org. Uh, and for those of you who can't be in our live audiences, as those of you who are watching now on our website or on Forward TV, know we can be seen that way. And as I've said, uh, all of these debates will be available on NPR stations across the nation. All right, we have the final results in. Our motion is this. Obamacare is now beyond rescue. We've had you vote before the debate. We've had you vote a second time uh, after hearing the arguments on this very motion. And remember, the team whose numbers have changed the most in your judgment in percentage point terms will be declared our winner. So the initial vote on the motion, Obamacare is now beyond rescue. Before the debate, 16% agreed with the motion. 53% were against. 31% were undecided. So those are the first results. Remember, you voted a second time, and the winner is the one that has changed the numbers the most in percentage point terms. So here are the results of the second vote. Obamacare is now beyond rescue. The team arguing for the motion, their vote went to 32%. That's an increase of 16 percentage points. That's the number to beat. The team against the motion, they went from 53%. Second vote, 59%. That's only 6%. It is not enough. The team arguing for the motion, Obamacare is now beyond rescue, has triumphed in this debate. Our congratulations to them. Thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll see you next time.